0: In how I understand sin, again, as a spiritual disconnection, I think it was important that, as Scripture says, he became sin who knew no sin. And so it's not that he sinned. It's not that he was turning away from God, which was in fact impossible for him to do as God's self, incarnate. Right. But that he took on that disconnection that we have. That he placed himself in our disconnection. When we think about in, what is it, First Peter, uh, of Jesus entering into hell and ministering to the lost souls. That there is this sense of that wherever we are in in our disconnection, no matter how far away we are, that Christ enters into that. And I think that is a taking on of sin, a taking on of our disconnect. Hello, welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. I'm Char. And I'm Byron. We're good to be... Ooh, we're glad to be with you. <laughs> Indeed, we're good to be with you. <laughs> we are good to be with you. What is it uh, Peter
1: says? Lord, is it? it is good that we are here with you.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly, in the transfiguration. But we are not talking about transfiguration today, we're talking about atonement. Ah, eh.
1: No, no, that was a nah. We're not talking about transfiguration. Oh, got it, got it. (laughs) Um, I'm not dissing on atonement that quickly. (laughs) I'll I'll get there. There are,
0: (laughs) yes, plenty of uh, problematic ways to interpret atonement.
1: We'll atone for our sins about it later.
0: Yes. Um, And we hope to be engaging in all of the above uh, to explore, unpack some of the ideas that are... Uh, conventional, traditional, and maybe some more Jewish ways of approaching the understanding of atonement, uh, and then perhaps some mystical ways. So, the first thing that I want to do is just briefly define atonement. I think that makes sense. So, the word to atone Quite literally, this I've heard it explained this way and it makes to so be, much sense. Uh,
1: to sing re- disresonantly? A-tone?
0: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, mono... mono. Jesus was atonal. What's the word? Mono... One note. Monotone. Of course, tone. Monotone. <laughs> um, yes, a single tone. No. Uh, you can think of it as at one. A tone at one. So to to make things one that were not one before. So basically this reconciliation.
1: That, you're saying that's like a, a fun... A fun way, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. you're, no, no, you're that's not, not the like etymological... A... Okay. No, no,
0: no. <laughs> no, it probably comes from Latin or something else that uh, does not have the same English constructions that we do. Yeah. But we can play around with it and have fun. But I find Maybe that a very helpful way to remember when we're talking about atonement, yeah. that it is God making things one again. So, for things to be to need to be made one, obviously, there, there needs to have been a brokenness before. And so, in the conversation around spiritual disconnection, or you might use the term sin, um, there is this rupture, and we can talk about the specificities of that rupture and what it means for us to be out of relationship with God. Um, but importantly, in the atonement that universally we recognize as Christians was in Christ, um, I think there there is some debate as to whether it was, in fact, his death, his resurrection, or perhaps both. Or
1: his incarnation itself. Or
0: potentially his incarnation, exactly, that allowed us to be one. So what uh, has separated us, and then what specifically was the atoning work? Was it in the death? Was it in the resurrection? Was it in the incarnation? Was it in all of it? Um, I think most traditionally it's been described as the death, because historically... In the Jewish faith, there was this act of sacrifice that took place in the holiest of holies, the holy of holies. Potentially even
1: before that, like, it is one of the first acts of the Bible, right after the first sin is Cain and Abel and the first
0: sacrifice. Ooh. But that was not an atoning sacrifice. No,
1: not Cain killing Abel. That's not the sacrifice. (laughs) The sacrifice is that uh, Cain the farmer was jealous of the... Uh, pasture, raised, like the, the sheep, presumably, that Abel sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And the smell was pleasant unto God, and God was pleased and displeased with Cain.
0: Yeah, so offerings as a form of sacrifice as well. There, there are actually many different. There's yeah, uh, right. sin offerings, joy offerings. Um, What are some of the other ones? There's a whole list of different offerings that um Cleanliness? Yeah, ritual of cleanliness, I think.
1: Um like cleansing offerings like offering a pigeon after you have a baby, because evidently
0: women are dirty. And blood specifically yeah. is is dirty, yeah. Or at least it was seen as such.
1: I meant that very sarcastically. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um but I mean in, in many ways I think it just all body secretions also mostly blood, but yeah. Um Yeah, so a whole history and culture there. But essentially, uh, once a year, um, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, um, into the the temple, the inner room, which was uh, veiled off with this giant veil and would have a rope tied to his waist so that if he passed out in the presence of God,
1: and wearing bells, I believe. And that.
0: bells, yeah. So if you stop jingling, <laughs> or maybe you hear, jingle, 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 that's the sound that he <laughs> fell on the ground. Um, and, the, and so there was this deep sense of, in this space, this is where God is. And so at the Ark of the Covenant, there was this golden covering that was known as the mercy seat. And they would sprinkle the blood of a bull on the mercy seat, as the act of atonement for the sins of Israel. This was an annual tradition. And so we want to get into some of the modern theology around the atonement. Or even like various historical Sure, sure, sure. The the traditional, the the orthodox perspective on atonement. And a lot of this comes down to how we've translated the Greek word hilasterion, or... Yeah, hilarious. (laughs) Um, Mm. And and its various other forms, which has been translated as propitiation. Oh, love that word. Which, it's a very fancy word, and essentially it means the appeasement of the anger of someone, in this case, God. And so... Via exchange or something, right? Via sacrifice, I think, yeah. And so this is one of my pet peeves with theology is that oftentimes it's rooted in our understanding of a word that perhaps wasn't the original intention with that word. Not even questioning what Paul meant <laughs> or the writers of Scripture. How many people use this word? Propitiation? Uh, well, or hilasterion? Yeah. In its various roots, uh, Paul definitely uses it. The author of Hebrews uses it. Okay. Um, John, First John, uses it a couple times. So the okay. word has a few uses across various writers. Okay. Um, See, that right there was exegesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that's helpful to note that it's not... It's know, not just one person using Paul it.
1: Paul coming from a Pharisee perspective as sure. opposed to John coming sure. from sure. like a, a low perspective and Hebrews coming from a like, communal Jewish mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Jewish
0: maybe perspective. Cool. And so we take this word and then we say, well, obviously... The words there propitiation so god was angry so all this uh loosey-goosey theology where we try to say oh jesus just came for love and there was no uh you know that that his we can't focus too much on his death because um that's so scary and we can't believe in an, in an angry god and they say like look at the scripture it says right here god was angry we needed to propitiate god's anger
1: i mean Small question, anger at sin, anger at us. I think the
0: particularly harmful direction it goes is, you know, angry at us. Sure, sure. And I think there's there's some stuff to unpack there, but ultimately it's the idea that something would need to pay yeah. for yep. God's anger that actually in some ways transcends what God was angry about. You know, it's mm-hmm. like if you are angry and you require blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I to me it doesn't really matter what you're angry at. That's still concerning to me.
1: Except uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm j- I'm just curious about this like um it was Amanda Calderon in our class who talked about currency exchange. Mm. Uh and what are and and she was talking about it in terms of like feminism and as a woman of color her femininity is not in the same currency as white femininity and so there's there's like a a lack of currency exchange uh or whatever the like transfer is uh in this case hmm. like the currency of sheep blood is hmm. accepted for most of like jewish theology yeah but or, it or is, a goat or or a goat yeah. or bull or but it's an exchange for presumably human blood hmm. Which is then exchanged even more for, hypothetically, Jesus, like God blood. Yeah.
0: Back so, when I was, anyway, yeah. back when I used to believe this idea, one of the ways that I reconciled it with a loving God was the sense that it wasn't as much God's anger that needed to be quelled as the cost of death as a natural consequence mm-hmm. or the the cost of sin. Is death. The wages of sin is death, as, as scripture says.
1: Very Rousseauian of you.
0: Yeah. And the idea being, it's not that God demands it, it's just the natural law of creation. Right. Um, yeah. Which could potentially sound circular because it's like, well, didn't God create the natural <laughs> law? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was
1: thinking, my dad, you know, would often say this thing of like, sorry, that's just the way it is. I didn't make the rules, yeah. but God can't
0: say that. But God can't say that. God yeah. did make the rules. Um, and so then the question is, well, why is death the natural way or law? and again, as i was how I was processing it was the sense that, well, if we consider sin against another person to have cost and value and weight and stuff, then sin against the perfect God would be infinitely worse, and essentially the only thing that could cover not even cover, but, like, respond to an infinite burden is our totality, which would be our life. So that's, is
1: it? That's an interesting way of going for it, but, like, all that we have still isn't infinite.
0: No, no, it's not, but, you know, if you uh, have debt and then you die, your debt, depending on the debt... Still going to take everything you debt have. Student is going to keep going past the grave to your next descendants, but most debt, medical debt, I think, um, other fiscal debt... Uh, will go with you to the grave. So it's like you gave your everything, literally your life, now you're gone, and then the debt, it's not that it's paid, but there's, it's quelled. Yeah. Well, there's um, nothing more it can get for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, what more could you give than your life, right? Um, and so that An was... An
1: eternity in hell, maybe. <laughs>
0: yeah. Mm. But what I've been reflecting on as my own ideas of... God have been expanding and growing and God's nature naturally it reflects to this question of atonement, you know? And and it's impossible to get away from the gruesome reality of Jesus' crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Nor nor do I think we should. You know, if we leave out the book of Lamentations, we leave out the book of Job and the Book of Ecclesiastes, we leave out all the violence in the Bible, and we end up with this toxic joy. <laughs> That is not actually good because our world is hurting. Mm-hmm. Our world has pain. That is a vital part of reality. We cannot understand reality outside of pain. And so, if we were to try to look at Jesus entering into our story and saying, Oh, I'm going to be without pain, you know, Jesus wouldn't actually be entering into our story.
1: <laughs> that was a line in my uh, Ash Wednesday sermon. You mm-hmm. want a gospel without death? Sorry. It's not this gospel. It's only a gospel that can hold death as just another thing that allows death to
0: not be such a huge sting, so to speak. So the question is, did Jesus have to die? Did Jesus have to be tortured and die? Is there something about the way that Jesus died, the crucifixion, that has a direct relation to the work that took place? And or the
1: innocence and the blame and all that.
0: Sure, sure, yeah. There's the um. What is it? Is it Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter? There's a lot of stuff in Isaiah 53. He was silent before his shears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the notion that he was um, without. Bludgeon without uh, sin blemish blemish. Yes, is that Isaiah 53? I don't know where it is. Sorry, but there there's some sense of um being. The Lamb of God, who
1: takes away the no. <laughs> sins of the world. There's that.
0: Uh, but that that he was necessarily without brokenness, right? Like that, they, even his bones weren't broken, which is why you have taught me that it's important that we say, "This is the body of Christ given for you, not broken for you," because his body was necessarily not broken. Yeah, that's a
1: that's a tough thing. I go back and forth on that, actually, because uh, presumably Psalm 22 says all of my bones are out of joint. Mm. I don't know if it says, because usually on the cross, they would break a person's legs if it was taking them too long to mm-hmm. die, because otherwise you could stand up on your on your bones like your bones are supposed to do. <laughs> uh, but Jesus died so quickly that they didn't break his bones. So this, yeah, this has a whole bunch of things of like, yeah, presumably it's also somewhat theologically important that Jesus' body was unbroken.
0: Yeah. Even if it was bleeding and cut and all of that. And why is it important? Just because there's precedent theolo- uh, scripturally in pr- prophetic texts?
1: I think so. And just the, the tradition of a whole sacrifice, a healthy, right? You're you're not going to give some, like, it, it's the first fruits. It's like you're giving mm-hmm. the best in, in sacrifice. Yeah ideology it's you're not just giving the random moldy leftovers you're giving a a perfect example of the best that you have mm-hmm. as an even greater sign of the depth of your gratitude
0: but all of that still frames it where Jesus is an intentional sacrifice yes so yeah, one thought that gosh. i had uh thinking about what Jesus accomplished and this ties back as we were talking earlier um about this idea of sovereignty and submission. Mm. And, you know, I mentioned this idea of the um, subsidiary sovereignties that within a nation, for example, you have states, and then within states you have cities, and they have been uh, permitted to have a certain jurisdiction, right. but that does not supersede the entity that is broader that contains it. Mm-hmm. And so in God as creator the world, the the forces of this world, whether it be us or you could talk about spiritual entities or such, um, that there's a certain jurisdiction that they have been authorized to, but it does not overcome the jurisdiction and authority and sovereignty of God. Mm. And with the disconnect in that this world was maintaining its power over us and keeping us from relationship with God, what God did was rather than upend the whole system which God certainly could have done mm-hmm. but it would have gone against God's reason for creating this world in the order that it has right um, God ty- typically doesn't erase you could look at the flood as an example of that but that's a whole another conversation well and
1: God says explicitly that they won't do it again
0: sure at sure. least not with flood yeah <laughs> <laughs> it'll happen again with, with fire, fire. <laughs> but,
1: but even then there's a there's a refining fire depending on how you think mm-hmm. about it and, and a continuation um, one of my Sunday school students was just talking to me about a book called The Mushroom at the End of the World mm. Um, about, I think it's Matsutake mushrooms. Ooh, only grow, i go to the end of the world for those. <laughs> only grow in places that have been essentially ravaged by fire. And so it's this anti-capitalist uh, yeah. kind of hopeful book about like, actually, like it's not the end of the world. And even if it is, there's stuff that grows out of that too. Yeah, um, beauty from ashes. And so- so the idea of, like, a clean slate, there's, there's yeah, God typically doesn't undo stuff. Even, I would say, for the most part, I can't think of a single miracle Jesus does that undoes anything that any human is, like, morally responsible for. Except, the only exception I think I can find, is Jesus healing... Um,
0: the uh, soldier's
1: ear? Malthus, is that his name? Yeah, the ear of the soldier who Peter... Cut off.
0: Yeah. But even so, chronologically, it's not a regression to where the act didn't happen. Because right. Peter right. The learned memory from is that. still there. Well, you know, Peter learned from that. The soldier certainly learned from that. Yeah. You know, that I, th- I would be hesitant to say that it was an undoing. But in- anyway, in all of that, God not wanting to undo God's intention with creation enters into creation. And so this would be like the president moving into a city. And it's like, well, does the mayor have jurisdiction over the president? <laughs> you know, like ah, what an interesting image. question if they, if they were to live in a certain city still as president. Um, and or does
1: the president canonically give up certain presidential powers? Yeah,
0: yeah, in this form of kenosis of, of letting go of their presidentiality in order to take part in the jurisdiction of the city. Yeah, for, for the time being, in, in this certain context, right? Um, and in many ways, that is exactly what Jesus did, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a lowly servant um, and entered in under the jurisdiction, not just of the world, but even the Roman Empire, the Jewish faith, the family unit, Yeah,
1: Marcella Althaus Reed talks about a a by Christ or an unjust Christ. uh, That the part of the byness is that Jesus gives up. So, like it's it's a take on kenosis that Jesus has to submit to hundreds, if not thousands, of years of Jewish tradition.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the most intimate level, submits to the limitations of a human body. Mm. Jesus had to sleep. Jesus had to eat. And in all of that, Jesus did not use his godliness to overcome it. But instead, in submitting to it, undermined its authority over God. And we see this most potently on the cross, and in Jesus' resurrection. That in being subjected to this horrible torture and death, death being the sting of sin, death being the final jurisdiction that this world has over us, that you cannot escape Mm -hmm. if you are a citizen of this world. And Jesus says, let me show you how empty and how fragile that is that I will overcome this last bit of power that you have. And so in that way... Who's you?
1: Death? The devil? De- sin? Uh,
0: um, I, would, I would say the jurisdiction of this world, hmm. um, most broadly. But, but you could argue it as sin. I don't like to um, anthropomorphize sin, because, um, again, I understand sin as this relational disconnection. Um, but in essence, yeah, the, that, that disconnect is fundamentally undermined in any of the power that it has to retain us and keep us. And so that actually frees us to be in this world. Mm -hmm. It's not taking us out of the world, but it frees us to be in the world, knowing that we fundamentally submit to the sovereignty of God and rule of God over our lives and not the world. And that pertains to everything. I mean, I'm even thinking just like fasting, right? Like your body says, eat. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But what I am saying is there there are certain expectations and and forms of control that naturally we would not choose to starve ourselves. Mm -hmm. But there's something powerful about being able to say, even the food that I need to eat is not more important than God. And so I can take this spiritual practice to remind myself of that and remind myself that even before my bodily needs... I am under God's authority, and Mm -hmm. I'm in relationship with God. And that practice can help attune us to that. But anyway, in all of this, if if we look at that example, did Jesus need to die on the cross? Did Jesus need to be tortured? And I'm not so sure. You know, I think Jesus needed to die because I think it would have been impossible for Jesus to have been fully human and not experience the finality of humanness,
1: right? Even if he died at 104, sure, as yeah, the healthiest exactly. person, yeah,
0: yeah, right, or lives to be 625 or something. Um. Number to <laughs> um, but but yeah, that, that he did need to die, and through death bring life, bring eternal life, demonstrate. The overcoming is there a
1: fancy theological word, just a single word that it that captures that, like, filtered through God idea? Gregory of Nazianzus, like, I just want a single word. Like, kenosis is this beautiful word of, like, the self-emptying of God when mm. he condescends into whatever, when they condescend. Um, so I really want a single word that, like, captures this. If it's filtered through God, it's good.
0: Mm. Yeah. Maybe we can work on that. We'll come up with a term. <laughs> Put it in the description or something. Yeah. But uh, yeah, okay. So even death gets passed through that. Even death gets passed through that. That that Christ either redeems or undermines death. That that death is no longer a barrier for our relationship to God. The
1: last enemy to be conquered. Oh death, where is thy sting?
0: Where is thy sting? Indeed. And so that takes away that idea of the Propitio- propitiation right but i do think so so on on the one hand in terms of christ undermining death he didn't need to die on the cross he didn't need to be tortured and crucified however there's something startling startlingly is that what i'm trying to say startlingly <laughs> Start a little human. Um, that's going to bother me. Um, about our judgment and our violence. That Jesus stepped into all of it. And, and I don't know if that could have not happened. You know, if Jesus, being not only prophet, but Messiah, were to advocate today for our return to God. Yeah, my gosh. That the,
1: humanity's default or like natural stance towards God is actually a like homicide. Yeah.
0: Not not like worship. And I think there's something inescapable about that. And in some ways that demonstrates the beauty of God's love, right? Christ died while we were yet sinners while Christ we were yet sinners reason. exactly. Um, and so yeah, it's just an interesting question if, if Jesus needed to die on the cross or if that form of death was an inevitability And what does it say then about the relationship of God to Empire right that that does God need are you saying God needs Empire then? no 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 cuz again i think in terms of redemptive capacity that it, that if our sins were all tried and never led to uh violence and murder and torture and it was just like disapproving glares from a distance <laughs> and jesus was looked upon disapprovingly until his death at 104 um i i still think that is something we would need to be redeemed from you know i i mm-hmm. don't think that yeah, we can measure sin and be like, "Oh, there's a little bit of sin that's okay, but like a lot of sin, oh, that's too much now." Right, right.
1: And the, I think part of the thing of the stuff that gets filtered through God is that everything gets filtered through God, except because God, in this case, did not sin. The mm-hmm. sin doesn't get filtered through God. That's the that's what's that's the stuff that's left behind on the dirty side of the filter. Mm-hmm. But what about death then? Death was never bad,
0: right? It was just a consequence yeah, that hurt. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Um, in how I understand sin, again, as a spiritual disconnection, I think it was important that, as Scripture says, he became sin who knew no sin. And so it's not that he sinned. It's not that he was turning away from God, which was in fact impossible for him to do as God's self, incarnate. Right. But that he took on that disconnection that we have. That he placed himself in our disconnection. When you think about in, what is it, First Peter, of Jesus entering into hell and ministering to the lost souls, that there is this sense of that wherever we are in, in our disconnection, no matter how far away we are, that Christ enters into that. And I think that is a taking on of sin, a taking on of our disconnect. The consequences of sin. Well, again, I don't see sin as the action, but the consequence itself. Like, it's not—to me, sinning is turning away, and that lets us be turned away, but it's the it's the fact that we are turned away that I would call, like, being in sin.
1: Yeah, I hear that. I, I have certain disagreements with it, but yeah, that— are you, are you saying that the action itself is not the main thing because you don't want the action to be judged or judgeable as its own, like, hamartia, as
0: its own, like, failure? No, it's it's not that the action it not a failure, but the action is inconsequential in comparison to the result of the action, right? Like, um, I don't know, if you tried to say mean things to me, and I took no offense, in a way, what disconnect is happening? Now, I would say that there's a disconnect that's happening on your end, that you are harming yourself. Right. right? I think... But but to me, the, the weight of the problem is the fact that the relationship has been broken, not that there were things that we did to break the relationship. I'm not trying to take our agency out of it, because again, right. I think free will and agency is incredibly important in our relationship with God, but just acknowledging... What is in fact the thing that is harmful, and and the reason why I say all this, and this might sound like uh, picking at little like nitpicking, um, but I think our present concept of sin is so legalistically bound. It's like these are these A B C D things that we do that are bad, um, and that God is judge in a courtroom with the golden hammer. And it's not that the it's judge, a gavel, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was thinking more like Thanos's hammer. Um, Thor's hammer, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Marvel fan here, apparently. Apparently. Um, You know, but uh, I think what that image misses is the relationality and the key of a relationship. Uh, It's not that it's a bad image because it's in the Bible and I think it has its merit, but I think we focus on that too much instead of thinking about God as father or mother or uh, Jesus as good shepherd and these very relational images like a mother hen who watches over her chicks. Like the way that I understand God, we we start to impose a certain legalistic rhetoric onto God, which is a social construct that we have devised as civilization has advanced and not something intuitive the way that relationship is intuitive. I mean, from your very birth, even before your birth, there's an exchange of nutrition in the womb. Like there is relationship on a deeply intuitive level and so I think it makes far more sense for us to understand that dynamic through what is already so intuitive to us as relationship as opposed to the legal model as our primary form of understanding God in relationship to us. And and sin.
1: Yeah. You, you're making me ask the question of because you, you've I don't wanna I don't wanna um it's not straw man, what is it like red herring? No, not that one either. It's some logical fallacy of, like, saying, you know, that, oh, a lot of people do this when it's actually, like... Like a bandwagon fallacy? Bandwagon, maybe. Not quite that either. But, like, attacking... Because bandwagon is like, oh, everyone does it, so I should. Um, but kind of a... You said, like, you know, it's, it's very prominent in theology. And that, like, frankly, I haven't heard a lot of that at Princeton.
0: The legal metaphor? Yeah. I mean, I think it's implicit. Right, if we talk about sin as things you do that are you are judged by, that is legal vernacular.
1: Yeah. I'm just kind of coming from the other side at least personally. Like I don't think I have thought of like I this is a conversation between you and me. Like mm-hmm. we can talk about about outside society stuff and what they do. But, like, I haven't thought about sin as, like, judgment for years, Mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, Probably not even as a primary thing. And yet I still get lost in the aspect of, like... So, I mean, I I hope this isn't too off track. I just want to, like, take it personal for a Mm -hmm. second. I um, was thinking about, like, Putin recently. Mm -hmm. And it makes me... And even, like... um, Derek Chauvin, and all, like, bad people. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the the concept of a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a very helpful or humanizing thing. Um, not to take away the responsibility for, or, like, agency of what bad things people can do. But even in, like, Taproot, when I was doing the bullying prevention job, we didn't talk about bullies. We talked about people who do bullying behavior. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a people-first language here. Sure. Um... And I was raised with this idea that, like, there were bad people, mm-hmm. um, evil people. Um, and in my own kind of sensitivity and my own circles, bad people meant, like, rebellers to God. True. Uh, which then quickly became queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, queerness of all things, like, <laughs> I'm just so. And I, I don't want to, like, attack a theoretical. Uh, opponent either. Um how do I put this? Like I I'm so frustrated that people can like read the Bible and all of the stuff that Jesus says and come away with their like biggest issues being like control of other people's sex lives. Yeah, right? Um like right or wrong, I just just like talk about majoring in the minors. Um <laughs> but so so I've had this very humanist, empathetic response of like, oh, no one's really evil. Mostly because I don't want to be seen as evil. Mm. And so, but then I get this really big problem of like, oh, but what do we do with like, not just horrendous evils, but people who actuate horrendous evils. Mm -hmm. Like you you were saying, uh, and I kind of wanted to return this question of sin because I think it's so central and I I don't want to spend too much time on it. But I kind of accidentally... Uh, co-created or reinvented the Catholic idea of uh, sin, like venal and carnal sin or whatever it is. I I actually haven't studied the Catholic version, but I I explain this to some people and they're like, oh, that's just Catholic ideology. And I'm like, cool, I invented it too. (laughs) Um, Right, so if I am attempting to assassinate you, like if I'm going to shoot you, um, my... This is kind of back to legalism a little mm-hmm. bit. Like the, a premeditated murder mm-hmm. is judged more harshly than an accidental murder. Sure. And that kind of implicitly feeds into this ideology that if I'm intending, so there's three sins that ever happen mm-hmm. in in a kind of sinful action. There's my intent to do the sin. Mm-hmm. There's the action of the sin. And then there's the like spiritual separation and consequences.
0: Um, I would tie the first, the one and three. I think your intent is already spiritual disruption.
1: Yes. Sure. I mean, but it's non-actuated yet. Like, there, there's the sin of, like, if I actually kill you, your mom will be sad. That's a third, like, disconnect. There's my intent to do so, and then if someone arrests me or, like, stops me, I have still sinned in my heart against sure, you. Sure, sure. And then there's the action. If I shoot you, mm-hmm. but the wind blows the bullet out of the way or something. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Right, and then the third one is if it actually
0: happens. See, I wouldn't draw a line then between the first two. To me, if you try to do something versus you're just thinking about it.
1: But it doesn't affect you.
0: But neither one or two would. If if I shoot you and the wind somehow blows the bullet out of the way or it hits a tree or something like that and you don't notice, I don't see how that's different from the first one where I'm just wanting to do it.
1: Jesus, yeah, I mean, uh, Jesus says, like, if you have looked at someone with lust, you have committed adultery mm-hmm. in your heart, uh, which is one of the reasons why the uh, theology of it's okay to be gay but not do gay um, is BS. Yeah. Because it Good being point. in your heart is enough. Um, anyway, the, uh, so two-part, tri-part, whatever it is, I could sit and think more about it. I, I remember there being three uh, types of disconnects or opportunities for disconnect. Either way. My issue with sin is not that I think of it in terms of judgment, but I'm actually I think too lenient. I think of sin in this like resource way. The only reason anyone sins is cuz they don't have the resources or they don't have the they don't think they have the resources. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I can't like I have a a huge limitation on justice. And like I can't call Putin evil or I can't call what Putin is doing evil or I can't like I can say what? Like he he is doing evil, but he is still redeemable if he were to turn to God and Metanoia and stop the stuff. But the consequences are still there. Anyway, so this this is like related to atonement in my mind of Yeah. Who does what and how it affects people. Yeah. Maybe that was a sidetrack, but no, I wanted to say it.
0: it is interesting, yeah. I I feel like We cannot separate the physical and the spiritual. I think there are times where it becomes easier in conversation to do so, but that's a false construct that we've created, that somehow the spiritual is uh, removed or separate from the physical. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the physical violence that happens in our spiritual disconnection, that has very real spiritual implications. I mean, the the harm that someone experiences on a physical level is, is a kind of spiritual harm. Mm. So it's not like their soul is somehow protected or safe just because they were innocent in being harmed. Like, No, that is the definition of harm, is that we put someone in a bad place. And it's not just a physical place, but we're putting them in a bad spiritual place because of the harm that we cause them. Can we put anyone in a spiritual place? We are influencing their spiritual state, Yeah, Sorry. in the same way that we influence their bodily state when we cut off their arm. Sure. You know there there's there is damage that is happening to their soul, not just to their body. Presumably. Um, and so, in a sense, when I sin and cause you harm, I am also causing you to be in sin, in the consequence of sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think this is a way of thinking about Jesus, too, that he took on all the weight of our sin, and that put him in sin, even if he did not sin as an action. Sure. you know, And that the result of that, the consequence of that, was not just physical bodily pain, but that was a deep spiritual tear that Jesus had to go through in order to redeem us. Yes. And so when I think about Putin, I was actually thinking about... uh, Sociopaths Mm. or psychopaths. I actually still don't really know Mm -hmm. the distinction between those two terms. But, um, you know, these people who do tremendous acts of violence that I would argue probably cannot be helped exclusively with therapy Mm -hmm. or with love because it is an actual neurochemical difference. Yeah. You know, they might need medication, if if there's a certain medication that exists to subdue whatever impulses are taking place to cause them to lean into such forms of violence. Right. Um, Now, I think it's so easy for us to look at a mass murderer like Ted Bundy or the Green River Killer or, you know, even like Hitler or something like that Mm -hmm. and say, oh, that person is evil. But... Now, I don't, I don't know if Hitler... Maybe Hitler's wrong to put in the list because he, it might not have been a neurochemical thing. It was probably much more situational. Um, and I would say, having read a little bit of his background, that I'm cert- certain there's trauma there. You know, there's some, like, messed up stuff in his family. Sure. Um, and, and this is not to excuse violence, but to explain. I think there's a very important difference between excusing and explaining. Yeah, that, absolutely. That we, we can recognize, I did this because ABC, and that doesn't excuse me for my actions, but it it helps make sense of it.
1: Yeah, gosh, have you read Native Son by Richard Wright?
0: I have read some of Richard Wright, little excerpts.
1: I would encourage you to read the book, but mm-hmm. uh, have you read Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison?
0: Uh, that is on my shelf. You're calling me out all these wonderful <laughs> books that I have read. No, 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 written. just, I mean, it's only two <laughs>
1: books that I have recently read that have these gruesome acts. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And, but the whole the way that the author talks about them is to not point draw attention to the criminality of the act, but to the context of what is happening, what led to it, why it is happening. Mm-hmm. You have a a scene where a father rapes a daughter and you understand why. And it's like, "Oh my god, it like that is the most horrendous like offensive thing to kind of try to think about and wrap your head around but Toni Morrison like writes it in such a way that you have uh, compassion and like understanding not necessarily like
0: forgiveness or lack of
1: culpability culpability Sure,
0: sure but I think that the start for all of our redemption and even our spiritual reconnection as humanity is to recognize the place where we're coming from as human beings, Mm -hmm. and I would say that we have tendencies towards harm, just as we have tendencies towards good. Now, I don't view the tendencies toward harm as having as basic and as fundamental an essence to our being as our goodness. I think it is the response to harm. Right. We're not inherently sinful, Mm -hmm.
1: but we're inescapably sinful. I, I mean, as you put it, like, if my... If my sin causes you to be in sin, then sin's a really freaking contagious thing.
0: Very contagious, yeah. It
1: just gets everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you are what you eat. You know, it's interesting.
0: I'm, it's in this environment. Yeah, you're making me think about my visit to the Bruderhof community recently, where, so the Bruderhofs are this uh, Anabaptist community started by a guy named Eberhard Arnold, um, kind of in response to Nazi Germany post-World War One, I, I believe. Um, and this community that I visited up in New York, we were asking them some questions of basically how are you able to function as this healthy community? And one of the questions we had was about conflict. How do you deal with conflict? And it was wild to me the way that one of them responded, and this seemed to be the general consensus, was almost a look of dumbfoundedness, surprise to our confusion at this question. And they just said, well, we talk to each other about it. You know, you talk to the person who harmed you, you work it out. And we're all caught up here in a world where we are expecting that person to want us ill because we look to them and we look to the brokenness of the world and we see evil And so we're We're on our guard and we project that. And then we also embody it because that's fairness. Mm. You know, there's this sense of like, if we had just enough food for everyone and you see the person in front of you take more than their fair share, you might be far more inclined to cut the line and to take more than your fair share to make sure that you have. And you've seen this justification because someone else did it too. You know, whereas if you are in this culture where nobody ever steals, Does nobody ever steal
1: steal in the Bruderhof community?
0: I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, I would imagine, actually, that they have little to no stealing. I mean, at Princeton, we all leave
1: our bags outside the chapel. Like, I'm totally comfortable leaving my computer open in the library and stuff. Yeah. But stuff has gotten stolen.
0: Sure, sure. Now, you're leaning into a trust in a way that there is some evidence... Perhaps not a lot, but some evidence that would suggest that that trust is not well placed. If you had a community where that trust was certainly well placed because there had never been any theft, you wouldn't have that inclination towards protecting your stuff. And you presumably wouldn't have the inclination towards stealing either. Because I don't believe it to be this deeply inherent thing. It's, it's about survival. It's about self-protection and self advancement in, a, in the face of the scarcity of the world that we wouldn't need to pursue if it was all secure for us.
1: With a lack of empathy of how that might affect others.
0: Sure. Yeah. Where we, you know, we all have intrusive thoughts. I have intrusive thoughts about like jumping off of things that has no relation to any suicidality. Um, it's just like whatever random your brain doing the taboo thing, right? Yes. Um, but I wouldn't consider that a desire or intention um and it's never manifested as such but it, I, c- I can hold that oddness in the midst of a much deeper understanding of my values and of the k- culture and of the sense of of the sacredness of my life or whatever yeah um
1: i think that's a little optimistic how so so in education, in uh, philosophy of education, with Doctor McCoskey right now we just talked mm-hmm. about Jean-Jacques Rousseau and mm-hmm. his state of nature and natural consequences, and I just realized how much I really love Rousseau, mm. um, but it does lead to some problems. In terms, uh, he was staunchly anti-Calvinist. He grew up in Geneva, uh, two hundred years after Calvin, um, and he was tired of this like people are bad <laughs> yeah. narrative. Um, and so he had this idea that really it's uh, like society and human constructs and things that lead to sin. Um, but it's a very trusting philosophy. Mm -hmm. The, The biggest theme that I've traced through all of these philosophers in philosophy of education is who are they trusting? Yeah. Do they, are they trusting creation to reveal itself to them like Aristotle? Are they trusting the goodness of God to be present in all people like Plato? Are they trusting students to be able to like learn everything they need to and improve themselves like Kant? Are they trusting the teacher to have all the essential knowledge like someone else? (laughs) I forget. Um, You know, or are they trusting like human nature itself? Mm -hmm. to be non-tainted like Rousseau. Yeah. Like where do we put our trust? And that's just, I'm I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's wrong. Just
0: identifying that that's a lot of trust to put in. So much trust. Like an innate human. And the reality is that most of the harm that we cause on a day-to-day basis isn't related to intention at all, but related to miscommunication. Mm -hmm. We miss each other. You know, I say something that hurts your feelings, not because I was trying to hurt your feelings, but because what I tried to say was different from what you heard, from your context and from my ignorance, right? right? Um, And so if we think about how harm can even cause, even when there's no, harm can be caused even when there's no desire to harm, right? how fragile would be that space of trust where we expect everyone to fully cooperate and and love each other well. Um, And so because of that, the fact that people are still drawn to that, the fact that these communities... Drawn to, goodness, drawn, drawn to goodness, drawn to goodness, yeah. yeah. Okay. Even as a minority, you know that that these communities are not the majority of how most of us live our lives, but the fact that they exist at all to me is a demonstration of that inherency in our being that can be found even if it is a, a far cry, even if it's a challenge. Interesting. Um, you know that the distrust that is so prolific because it's so much more secure, because again. You know, if we think about entropy, a high entropy thing is highly organized, right? Mm. You know, and, and entropy wants to go to low entropy, yeah. to chaos, right? That, so much easier to knock a building down than build one. Exactly. And, and to me, with these utopic communities or with, like, just good-natured people, that is such a high-entropic situation that, based on the harm and every, all the chaos and the miscommunication in the world— that the fact that anyone can hold that, to me, is a demonstration that even though we are easily reduced to this low entropy, that our natural state is in high entropy. That we are naturally good.
1: Fascinating,
0: um, right? Because think about it. If if low entropy, which is always happening, there's this there's this pull towards the distrust because hurt people hurt people, right? That that sin, as we were just talking earlier, it proliferates. It, it's like a cancer. Um, that I hurt you, and then you hurt other people because of your hurt that it expands and grows. The fact that any of us can heal the fact that any of us can come to a place of high entropy from that force that is constantly pulling to low entropy, to me says that is our base existence.
1: I see where you're going. um if the <laughs> if gravity weren't pulling down and we hadn't, like characterized down as bad, mm-hmm. um, then, right? Like building a building is the exception to. And the fact that we build buildings all the time but like yeah I, okay i see i see what you mean um i i think it's a little optimistic and I, I don't disagree with you i think it's a little optimistic to see that as something innate with ourselves rather than like divine intervention um and an exception that, but i see i totally see what you mean
0: yeah Well,
1: yeah, I this mean, is, we're this going is all over healthy, the place now, too. Yeah, um, I, I think the, the quickest way back to atonement, is you <laughs> were saying something about, uh, I had asked a question of like, uh, does or how might sin get through or what part of sin might get through that God filter of Jesus? Or you were talking mm-hmm. maybe a little bit about um, Jesus's relationship to sin. Yeah. And what atonement has to do with that.
0: So can you expand a little more on the the God filter thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the
1: idea of Jesus, Gregory of Nazianzus' style, whatever, is anything that Jesus takes on is deified, is redeemed, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus takes on a human mind, so it's redeemed. Mm-hmm. Jesus takes on all of the essential human things, but not sin. Therefore, when Jesus dies, the thing that gets left on the like bad side of the filter that Jesus didn't actually take on. And so didn't redeem is sin. It was the sin that is left behind because otherwise sin would have been redeemed and we could just keep sinning. Yeah. But the difference between the power of sin and the power of death, maybe because Jesus took death with him to the other side.
0: Yeah. Again, I, I view sin and death both as conditions Of each other again. Like I I don't want to view sin as a as an object, a thing that could be left on one side of the filter, Um, but that's just my personal stance. Um, Getting back to this idea of the hilasterion, you know, the propitiation, right, as it's defined. That um, this term is actually somewhat fiercely debated in in what it means. That it's not an immediately obvious sense of propitiation and appeasement Mm -hmm. um but the word actually relates to uh the mercy seat so again at the beginning as i was talking about how in the holy of holies the Mm -hmm. inner room of the temple where the ark of the covenant was there was this golden covering of the ark that was the mercy seat where they would sprinkle the blood of a bull as as this atoning sacrifice and so one way of interpreting that then if if Jesus is the hilasterion, is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice itself. But some have argued that, no, Jesus is the mercy seat upon which that blood is sprinkled. So it's not that Jesus was a sacrifice of God in the sense of um, fulfilling the anger, but that Jesus replaced the old model. So the old mercy seat where we would need to atone was being replaced by Jesus as the new covering that no longer requires our blood.
1: How and why? What do you mean? Like Jesus is the thing upon which our sacrifice and our blood and our sin is like thrown?
0: No, no. (laughs) That's getting kind of violent. No, no. Um, You know, if we think about the Jewish traditional way of understanding the mercy seat. That it is the place where we atone for our sins. Yeah. That Jesus replaces that as the place now where we go. I am the way, the truth, the life. You know, that, that we go to the mercy seat, but not to sprinkle blood anymore. Because the new way has moved past, has, has fulfilled that old way. That no more blood has to be spilt.
1: Has fulfilled as in satisfied? Like, an infinite debt. Like, one, one way of thinking is that, so we have oh, we owe an infinite debt because we owe it to an infinite being. And so the only one who can do that is God from our side. Right? Like, here's, you can't see my hand, sorry. Here's mm-hmm. the divide. God's on this side. Yeah. And there's there's a the divide. Jesus comes to the other side. And only an infinite distance can cross that infinite gap. Yeah. And so Jesus does it from this side.
0: I wouldn't use the language of debt personally um, because, again... Yeah, I don't like it. The idea of debt means that, oh, if you could pay that, then you'd be uh, capable of covering it and, and, and almost like earning. There's a sense of deserving. And I don't think that relationship with God is anything about deserving and having any power capacity to, to earn. What I see it as is that um, you know there is no space for separation within God. And that means there's no space for sin within God because sin is separation from God. That sin that God desires whole relationship, perfect relationship, restored relationship, which we do not have the capacity for in our sinful state. That we will constantly fall short. In fact, we the very air we breathe is falling short. Um, not the not the air itself as a substance, but the sense of like this is the water we swim in. This is the air right. we breathe, right? Um, and so. What Christ does, I do like that image of a bridge because there is this um, impassable gap that we could say in terms of attaining this perfection that we cannot have, that Christ is the bridge upon which we can cross. Christ is also the robes of righteousness. That's another metaphor for describing it, that Mm -hmm. we we cannot embody perfection in our relationship with God save for wearing the perfection of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, But... uh, Yeah, so I I agree with all that. It's just the the language of debt that I have an issue with.
1: Yeah, I'm still trying to get the, like, golden box covering thing.
0: Yeah. um, Because
1: you're not saying... You're saying that rather than the process of the sprinkling of the blood, mm -hmm. which is the hilasterion part.
0: Mm -hmm. No, no, so the hilasterion is the mercy seat is the covering is the covering. And so if we think about Jesus as the hilasterion, we could either translate that as the the act of what happens on the hilasterion, which would be the sacrifice, and that's where like the idea of propitiation uh-huh. is kind of stemming from, or we can think of Jesus as the mercy seat itself, as the golden tablet that is covering
1: which doesn't require blood or anything exactly
0: it doesn't require blood and the veil has been torn too so there's this idea of the distance and separation from god which requires a certain piety that the best that human can offer the high priest comes in and even so it's not enough so there needs to be this blood and it's like this hierarchical thing that we cannot reach you know the cloud above the mountain no matter how high you go kind of thing um and jesus in stepping into the lowest of lows of relating to the sinner of of you know, making the last first and the first last kind of like expand universally mm-hmm. this isolation that doesn't, it, it doesn't undermine the significance of that perfection of the really kind of relationship we need to have with God, but it allows us access from wherever we are, mm-hmm. that we don't need that blood. We don't need to be the Holy of Holies uh, high priest, um, but that the new mercy seat is in fact universally merciful. And I don't want to say that it uh, gets rid of or undoes the past way, because, again, I think there's something really important about the way that God relates to us, first through extreme exclusivity to be expanded into universality. There's something about that that communicates the importance, the power, the significance, where, you know, as I've said before, Israel being God's nation, then being a light to all nations and and expanding, opening up that all can come in through Israel to God— um, or Jesus being the way in which we all come to God. There's this exclusivity and intimacy of that relationship, but also a certain power and strength in that. And I think similarly, the sense of you have to sacrifice blood. You have to, like, death is required. It's like, oh my goodness, this is powerful. This, this demonstrates the, the huge cost of sin. This demonstrates the tremendous error of our, of our ways and the um, fantastic glory of God that is so far above our capacity. Mm -hmm. And so that's the issue with all these wooey gooey kind of theologies that Jesus is my boyfriend, my best friend, and not viewing it also as Jesus is Lord Mm -hmm. and Jesus is God and and perfect. And and the sense that we are this tiny little speck of dust, you know, oh, so humble that God. What a demonstration of love for God is perfect to try to relate and want to relate and engage and bring up, elevate this tiny speck of dust. Right. You know, you can't lose that. And so I still find the image of the old mercy seat powerful or the old covenant powerful. Just because Jesus makes a new covenant doesn't mean that he's getting rid of the old, but he's fulfilling it. And so I think the old mercy seat has been fulfilled. Um, and, and and maybe that's where we go with the, with the blood of Jesus. Maybe it's a fulfillment not for the sake of God's wrath, but for the sake of what the old mercy seat uh, stood for and what it demonstrated and, and how it was significant for our ability to relate to God, that Jesus fulfilled that with the blood of the Lamb, the finality that, that was so, such perfect blood that nothing else would, would ever be cost. Um, so so the sense of fulfilling the old mercy seat.
1: Fulfilling, but not getting to some sort of like satisfaction.
0: Satisfaction in the sense that it's, you know, I don't view God as a bloodthirsty God, right? The idea of paying with blood, paying with life, is to demonstrate the cost and the impassibility of that divide.
1: I mean, is this related to like Isaac? The idea of, like, sacrifice your son and God's like, nope, wait, never mind, I'll do it. I'll sacrifice mine.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's such a great image for atonement um, that, you know, Abraham um, was not faithful and was not obedient to God in, in terms of the plan that God had. And, and didn't trust that God would provide, and in his humanity, too, was not at one with God to become the father of many nations. You know, that, that was a work that God desired and that God can do, but that there was something required of Abraham, too, for that, for him to, to be that person. Um, and we get the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Isaac is to be that sacrifice. And what an incredible cost, particularly when you understand that Abraham, to be the father of many nations, now has one son to be considered legitimate through the promise of God. Mm -hmm. And that's not to discount the significance of Ishmael and the way that God blessed Hagar and Ishmael. Um, But it was the result of Abraham and Sarah's sin, not Hagar's sin, But their sin of of disobeying, um, where now Isaac is the, to be the father of of many nations through Abraham, Mm -hmm. right? You know, he's his progeny. He's the, the future, the hope of Abraham for having children as numerous as the stars. And God is saying, no, trust me with this. Give me your future. Give me the future that I promised you because it's my future through you. And he obeys, he listens. And in that faith, God makes a different way that allows Isaac to remain with life and to to be that fulfillment. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think through all of that, we can see then the, the parable, you know, as it says, uh, Genesis 22, 8, God will provide the lamb as Abraham is reassuring Isaac. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I composed a, Choral piece on this, um, tying that to Christ as the sacrificial lamb Mm -hmm. that God provided. Um, So I do sense a, a deep connection between those passages and what it means for us as humanity in our imperfection to be God's promise, to be the people that God is in relationship with, that God is leading towards a brighter future. Yeah. I want to make sure that there, if there are thoughts on atonement that you want to say.
1: Um, yeah. There's a couple, <laughs> there's a couple images. Um, one of them is the scapegoat idea. Mm-hmm. Um, that's slightly different than the sacrifice idea. Yeah. Um, it's this, it's this, uh, it, it takes the idea of separation even farther. Mm-hmm. Um, that the, that you're supposed to put your sins onto this goat and then send the goat out of the, the village.
0: On Yom, Yom Kippur. Yeah,
1: presumably to die in the
0: wilderness. Yeah. Um So that's
1: that's one idea is that then the sins die with the goat.
0: But there so just a, a brief goats. little addition here as I'm looking at our notes from WSJ's lecture on this. Um there is a ceremony of two goats. Yeah. One of whom was allowed to go free, the other one known as the scapegoat. Um, bears the sins of the people and is hurled into the death in the wilderness. Yes. So I think importantly that there, there were two goats there and that and that it demonstrates even in their presumed equality that one of them then takes on death so the other one can have life.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the other kind of... there's Yeah, there's this wrath of God idea. Um, and something that I've always been uncomfortable with, that I was just talking with my mom and with my mom about, was this idea of like owing a, an infinite sin to God, uh, or an infinite debt. Um, that like I'm, I sin sure, and like technically sinning against an infinite being would, mm-hmm. but why would put why would that put me at an infinite debt? Um, I could conceive of a calculation whereby that makes sense. Presumably, right? Like, I think we we had talked about this before. Like, if I sign up for a class, I'm assenting to the terms of engagement that the professor can give me a mm-hmm. bad grade if I deserve a bad grade by their assessment. Um, but like, I didn't sign up to be alive, yeah, and like be subject to God or this God. Um, and so just part of a little of that idea of like, there's there's some sense of injustice right like in the u.s we have a law against cruel and unusual punishment at least theoretically um or like a disproportionate punishment even hammurabi was you know eye for an eye Mm -hmm. that's an important concept so that we don't escalate things um anyway whatever uh so there's there's that one i've just never really felt at least in terms of hell or whatever. And so Yeah, if, if Jesus, like, satisfies the infinite debt that we owe, I think Calvin or maybe Luther talk about an infinite debt and I I just don't like it. Um doesn't make sense to me. The calculation doesn't match up. Um not because I'm not terribly sinful, but I don't think I'm infinitely sinful. <laughs>
0: Sure, and and the other aspect too is like, okay, if the infinite debt has been forgiven, well, what does then it mean of our future sins?
1: Presumably, like, I think they like fall into whatever future, like, in the same way that Jesus t- died for people in the present, past, and future,
0: when he died. Yeah, but I guess the idea of debt is an economic agreement. Um, that if your debt has been covered, in my mind, if your debt is continually being covered. There is certain license to continue to use up your credit, <laughs>
1: right? And that's that's a little bit what I mean, maybe, about the idea that, like, in a certain way of thinking about sin, which I think is still valuable, that Christ did not take sin with him to the other side of death. That,
0: that the goal like, of recognizing that sin is not gone, right? Yeah, yeah. sin and is I agree not gone, with but I agree maybe with the,
1: the ultimate consequences of it—the are the wages
0: gone. of sin have—you know—oh, death, where's your sting? Right? There's um yeah. sin has lost it's it's hold on us
1: all these songs yeah i know there's so <laughs> many songs that have gone through my head in the course of this
0: hour and a half um
1: what else um oh there's that classic idea of like jesus knocking on the door mm-hmm. saying like knock 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 let me in and the person answers who is it it's me jesus what do you want i want to save you from what From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in, right? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, like this. I, my dad. I think uh, it's hard to know when certain people like come up with something or if they are just sharing it from someone else. Um, what is that movie where I think it's called The Island? Uh, spoilers maybe. (laughs) Uh, there's like. the, the movie is like this this whole post-apocalyptic scene and there are these people who live this very kind of regimented life um but there's one place in the planet that's like not contaminated by nuclear waste mm. and if people are really good and get enough like good behavior points or whatever uh, they get to like retire to this island and live the rest of their life there um and it's a way of like promoting environmentalism and good citizenship or whatever. Uh, but this one dude escapes and realizes that actually outside it's not post-apocalyptic, uh, that this is in fact an organ harvesting system, that all of these people are clones of rich people mm. who just in case they... And so anytime someone quote-unquote graduates to the island, they're actually being harvested for their organs. Oh, my goodness. Um, and so this guy gets out, meets the person who he is a clone of, and kills him, takes his place. Wow. Um so I mean I told you spoilers but um
0: what an interesting movie great movie now I kind of want to watch it
1: <laughs> it's very good um or it's this this question of like wasn't there a story of these parents having a kid like they or they adopted it they had a kid that had uh like a congenital disease mm-hmm. or something and then they adopted a kid that had uh healthy organs or something or they had another kid just so that the first kid could have like a kidney or something. Oh my goodness. And that feels like, I think this is my, this is the image that my dad came up with. The certain ideas of atonement feel like God's son is just this like organ harvester har- yeah. harvesting setup, uh, so that God's mistakes or our mistakes or something are, have insurance. That's a really good point. And it's really just messed up, is what it is.
0: And yeah, what does it say about God's heart of love, right? right. Like you could say, oh, sure, God loves the first kid. Right. But what about the second kid? Right. You know, how can you say that God loves Jesus if Jesus is just born to be an organ harvester?
1: Right. You could you could flip it around. You know, what about I've I've brought up this idea of us as Satan's younger siblings. Hmm. Um, and you know, there's something a little bit weird. About or just
0: like the whole creation existed in order to give Satan redemption, right? Yeah,
1: that's a little bit more what I mean. if Yeah, if you don't know the context of what I'm talking about, sorry, that probably didn't make much sense. Go back and listen to Um, Very good in relation to this. I'm just like rattling through my brain of other modes or tones in atonement. Um, there's another one. There's the image of Passover. There is that one. You could talk about that one for a second. Well, I think.
0: Yeah, so... Passover, uh, so much Jewish history is tied to Jesus' death on the cross. Like, you cannot extricate this from all of this history. As we're talking about the mercy seat and Yom Kippur and traditions and rituals around this event, I mean, I would argue that while theologically we might claim ownership of Jesus' death and resurrection, Historically, that was a Jewish event, <laughs> not least of which for Jesus being Jewish, but we we have lost so much of that meaning because of the historical place where it's coming from. So, you know, in, in Passover, right, this is uh, the Israelites being freed from enslavement mm. in Egypt, and the blood of a lamb, an unblemished lamb, mm was spread over the doorpost as the angel of death passed through. And if you had the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, the angel passed you by. And if not, um, which would be the case of the Egyptians, the angel would take their firstborn son. Whew. And so thinking about the firstborn son, Isaac, if we consider again the first you know, born son to the promise, right? Um, and how the angel of death passed by and with the blood of a goat, Isaac was able to survive. There's a Passover scene for you too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, even all the Levites, right? Kind of in balance of all of the Egyptian sons mm-hmm. who died, um, the entire tribe of Levi was assessed as. So Israel was like, hey, in balance for all of them. And this is actually a, an odd sense of justice that I think is really fascinating. All the Israelites had to dedicate their firstborn to God as well. Mm. Um, and they did this interesting calculation where they counted all of the firstborn of all of the 11 tribes and it somehow equally counted as the entire male population of Levi. And so that's why they are the priests, mm-hmm. is that they are all dedicated to God yeah. in balance for the lives that were dedicated to God, quote unquote, mm-hmm. when God Took the firstborn of Egypt. Yeah, yeah, and that's really freaking intense.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it, this is all so intense, and I think we need to understand that intensity in order to have an appreciation for right. all of what is being communicated right. here. Absolutely. But again, looking to Jesus now as uh, the Passover Lamb, if we want to allegorically extend this to understand maybe how the early Christians or Messianic Jews or you know however you call the the first people who believed and followed Christ, yeah, um, that they would have understood because Jesus was betrayed on Passover. Mm-hmm. Like this, this event is all taking place on Passover. Yes. And uh, there's prophecy about the sacrificial lamb. Like, like they, they would not have missed the significance of what is happening here. And so yeah. what does it mean for Jesus then to be the Passover lamb? Well, it's um, about protection of the angel of death passing by. And, or let's call it the angel of destruction, because as I'll do a little play here, I think what dies then, the firstborn son of Egypt, the enslaver, which would be uh, the worldly order, or sin, if you want to call it, the firstborn son, which is our progeny, our future, was death. Death was the future of that world. Oh. And so death was killed. Wow! <laughs> right?
1: You. Did you just come up with that I just right came now? up with that right now.
0: Oh. <laughs> and so wow. uh, What by being covered by the blood of the lamb, there, that death has been killed and that, that we are no longer subject to the rule of this world of Egypt. We have Oof. escaped. God
1: is merciful. That'll yeah. breach.
0: Yeah. Um, and 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 yeah. what's wild in that too, though, is uh, I, I'm just going off now because this is, <laughs> it's free flowing. So um, I've got one other thought. The then. Israelites, as they are leaving, and they have to walk through the desert before they get to the promised land. Uh-huh. And there's this whole chaos Of the desert journey. And so what is the desert journey in our lives? Well, let's reflect the Israelites at one point in their need, right? Like they have life, they have freedom now, Mm -hmm. but they still have suffering. They still have, like, they're so dependent on God in this state Mm -hmm. um, that they want back. They want to go back to their old enslaved way. And I think this is what it means for us to be in Christ, that we have been set free. We are now walking the desert path to the promised land. And it, it is required that we walk this path, walking the way of Jesus. Uh, but that is not an easy path. That is a challenging path that comes with its own suffering and challenges. And we want back. We want back to the worldly way. And so many Christians still, myself included, in many ways live in the worldly way. Mm. Um, because Egypt is what we know. Egypt is what is comfortable. Babylon. The Babylon, exactly. So yeah. uh, that's my uh, Ooh, little little sermon for you today, y'all. That'll
1: preach. I'm going to take that one away. Um, yeah, uh, while we were in Serbia, there was a young Christian dude uh, who uh, said this thing that I, I think is compelling. It, God and God's omniscience, like God's omniscience plays a big role in this. Um, Two things. Micah actually said, and other people I'm sure, Father Micah, um, said that Jesus would come, Jesus would have come even if we didn't, even if the fall didn't exist. Like Jesus is not conditional, an entire third of the Trinity is not conditional on our need, right? Jesus existed before the fall. Jesus presumably would have, could have been the one walking in the garden, yeah. If, we're, if we take that as a Christophany rather than a theophany. And so Jesus would have come. It, back to your question, like, did Jesus need to die on the cross? Uh, like, is Jesus's resurrection the atoning or, like, fulfilling aspect that gets rid of sin? Is it, is it simply the incarnation itself?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so this thing that Micah says is that, uh, like, Christ would have come or planned to come no matter what. Like, that's part of God's plan of relationship with us. I think that's probably something Bart would agree with. Um, hard hard to hypoth- hypotheticalize. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the other side, you know, in God's omniscience, God knew we would fall and sin and all that. And so then it was... Uh, during, uh, what was his name? From Madagascar... Um, <laughs> Anyway, whatever. The movie or the country? No, the country. <laughs> um the student in Tiki or Tuki.
0: Oh, oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I think it's Tuki. I think you're right, Tuki, yeah. Um uh shout out to Tuki, um if you're listening.
1: <laughs> I I oh, I owe him a uh a descript, uh queer apologetic. He asked and I never got around to it. Mm. Um anyway, uh do he talked about. He said God made trees knowing that his son would die on one.
0: Mm. Oof.
1: And so there's an intentionality. It, like, if that was the plan, then hypothetically that didn't need to be part of the like, accommodating equation, or
0: it just was. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there, and we're trying to wrap up a little bit here. Uh but you know, as I've said before, I don't think that the fall was a mistake, but an inevitability, right? That in, in many ways that was part of the plan. I mean, God is God is stupid if they didn't see that coming. But also, and how could we have free will and the choice to choose God if not the choice to not choose God? Right. And the only valid choice through an everlasting amount of time for adam and eve to be roaming would be to make that choice eventually yeah like you can't it was inevitable roll a die an infinite number of times only land on one side and not see it as a loaded die Mm -hmm. right um so so in that sense yeah it was it was part of the plan and of course then christ was understood as part of the plan the entire time but again that's that's viewing christ only in how he walked on the earth. And I think our Christology needs to extend beyond just Christ as Jesus on earth in a 30-year period. Like our Christology is not limited Presum- to 30 years Presumably. of history, right? It's 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 part of the Trinity, part of the eternal essence of God that obviously in our humanity we can best relate to and understand and, and should start at the historical point, but it shouldn't end there. Right. And I would say, again, as I'm... that my, my present way of thinking about the Trinity as form, formlessness, and the relationship between that Christ is the very form in which all things are created. Um, that God is... And I'll maybe unpack this more on a different episode, but God is the thinker. And I, we actually did talk about this at one point, this Jonathan Edwards idea. And oh, all of creation is in God's mind. But Christ is the mind of God. And so Christ is form, everything that... It takes form, as it says in Colossians, um, comes through Christ, yeah. and 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 retains its being in Christ.
1: Yeah, John says a similar thing. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, that's a lot. It was a little chaotic. I mean, this is kind of the style. I didn't prepare anything coming into this. Yes, I mean, not really. You you looked up Hillisterion.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I had, <laughs> I had one thing under my belt, and
1: and went back to the notes. But like, this is this is kind of how we do. Which means, you know, sorry, we're we're referencing a lot of stuff that's more uh, familiar to us. But I hope, I mean, that that Egypt thing, um, that'll go. Whew. Anyway, beloved. Um, we're going to send you on your day or night or whatever time it is for you with this benediction. May you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos or wilderness, Mm. and comfort in the love that makes you you. Go in peace.